Again, we're in the book of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship in the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Uh, we are all out of order today, aren't we? And that's a good thing, because typically when we get into this routine or we get into this order, we sometimes forget how to worship, right? God messes up our order. God messes up our routines. He messes up our scripts so that we can learn first how to worship Him and then learn how to speak and then learn how to sing. Today we're talking about a disciple uh, being a worshiper. And so before we go any further in, in singing songs and taking the Lord's Supper, it feels like it's beneficial to first lay out the biblical paradigm of what a worshiper actually is. How do we actually do worship uh, before we begin to start singing and praising God? And so today we preach first. We'll sing later. Okay? So pull out your Bibles this has been planned uh, since Monday, so uh, you're good to go. And let's pray. Father God, we just lift up to you this time. God, we ask that you will be uh, sovereign over this time, that you will feed us. Father, convict us of sin. Heal us of where we've been wounded. Father, I pray that you will help us to find water at the well. God, I ask that at this moment, you will meet every person where they are and give them exactly what you know they need. And we pray this trusting in the gospel, and we pray this in the name of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Walking on the Temple Mount, you can still sense the deep reverence held for this ancient place of worship. It's been decimated to ruins. There's still char marks on the bricks where fires have burnt uh, different parts of the temple. But just to think of how majestic and how massive and how busy that place once was is, is awe-inspiring. Just to think about the kind of things that would have happened on a day-to-day -day basis. Not long after sunrise, every single day, a shofar would sound in the distance. It would invite people to come and observe the... Uh, morning sacrifice would invite the faithful to come and pray and give God their first moments of the morning. It invite them to come and worship and to sing temple songs and to and to approach the God who had 
protected them throughout the night and had given them a brand new day. So you'd hear the shofar and you would know it's time to put down your work, close down your shop, and you'd walk up the southern steps. You'd go into the beautiful gate where there's the three arcs and you would go through those three archways and enter into Solomon's porch. The women would continue on and go into the women's court where they would pray. You would see curious Gentiles there, maybe Egyptians. Um, Maybe you would see some Greeks there that are all interested in hearing more about this God named Yahweh. But the men would keep going further and they would go in past Solomon's porch, past the court of the Gentiles, past the court of the women, to the court of the altar, where stood the priest praying where stood a lamb that was ready to be sacrificed. The priest would sing and get all the people's minds ready to receive this sacrifice, to understand that this sacrifice was being slain on their behalf. They would pray and then the sacrifice would take place. It would have been quite the sight to see. With every brick and stone signifying the glory and greatness of God, to see this massive temple meant to reflect the great glory of the infinite creator. And yet, as impressing as this place would have been, there are all kinds of indications that things were not as glorious as they seemed to be. To be sure, the temple was a wonder of the ancient world. People from all over the world came just to see the temple in Jerusalem. It was amazing, plated with gold on the doors. They they would have been a phenomenal sight to see. You wouldn't plan your vacations to go to the Caribbean. You would plan your vacation to go see the temple in Jerusalem because that's how majestic and amazing it would have seemed to everyone. Even Ethiopian eunuchs coming into Jerusalem just to go hang out in the temple. And yet, even with the bright whiteness of its stones, the glitter of its gold, the hustle and bustle of the crowds, the people's hearts were crusted over with sin. The visible majesty of the place masked the invisible muck of the people's idolatry. To be sure, songs were being sung, ancient songs, psalms were being sung, psalms that David himself wrote. Prayers were being prayed. Sacrifices were being made. Blood was going on the altar. But true worship was non-existent. The people were in the right place. They were doing the right things. But they had the wrong hearts. Which sullied their songs. It disqualified their sacrifices. They honored God with their lips. But their hearts were far from Him. And so He detested them. He goes so far to say that their sacrifices are an abomination to me. That when he smelt their incense, it was a stench in his nostrils. The story of the Samaritan woman, as we'll see today, has been a favorite for us as Christians. We go to it to see a lot of different themes. We, we see uh, the themes of grace for undeserving people. We see acceptance for the outcasts. We see forgiveness of sins for the sinful. We even see the necessity of evangelism as the woman goes and tells all the city about who Jesus is. And as important as these themes are, there is one other very valuable lesson that rarely gets taught from this passage. That is, the story of the Samaritan woman demonstrates that true worshipers of Jesus, true worshipers of God, are not the right religious people 
who do the right religious things in the right religious place. True worshipers of God are those, specifically sinners, who worship the right Savior with the right heart. What I want to do this morning more than anything else is I want to de-religify, if that's a word, worship. Your worship ultimately is not the praises that we sing here in church. It's not dependent on this place. Your worship's not based on how much you give. Your worship's not on how well I preach. Your worship is ultimately based on the state of your heart. And how you view Jesus as your Savior. Do you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation? And does that in and of itself compel you and motivate you and thrust you into a right relationship with God. And to pursue water from the well of Christ to be satisfied. This meditation will lead us to see that disciples are worshipers who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now John 4 is where we're at begins by telling us how Jesus ended up in Samaria in the first place. It says this, Now when when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Now, paying attention to the progression of events in John's gospel sometimes reveals important comparisons. So, for example, when you read John 4, you know that John 4 is not the beginning of John's gospel. There's still John 1, John 2, and John 3. So knowing what has happened in John 1 and John 2 and John 3 helps us to understand this event in John 4. For example, in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, John writes about the Messiah He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This rejection is demonstrated later in John 2 as Jesus comes to the temple. The right people, the Jews, were worshiping in the right place, the temple. They They had the right things going on. They were going about the right kind of work. And yet they had turned the Father's house into a noisy place of commerce. It was just a place of business. A place to make money. A place to sell and trade. Their hearts were far off from God. And so Jesus, being zealous for his Father's house, cleans out the temple. And instead of receiving the correction of the Son of David, the Son of God, the people, the religious authorities, the elites, the Pharisees, begin to ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gave you the right? They rejected him. All this goes to show that God's chosen people... In the chosen place, we're not participating in true worship. As seen at the beginning of John 4, the Pharisees hear about Jesus' growing numbers, and they become jealous. Jesus is a threat. More and more people are following him. More and more people are turning away from the Pharisees. More and more people are coming to Jesus to be saved, to be cleansed. He is a 
threat. And so the irony of ironies of all this story is that the religious elite who should have seen Jesus for who he was were too blind to recognize their own messianic savior. They did not have the eyes for all the times they had read the Old Testament, for all the times that they had memorized Isaiah 53, the way that they, they, they spoke of Daniel 7, Psalm 2, uh, Genesis 3.15. They could not see Jesus for who he really was. The passage says that he had to pass through Samaria. Most ardent Jews of the time would have simply walked right around. It would have added several days to their journey, but because they hated the Sumerians so much, it was worth the three or four extra days to go around Samaria. You wouldn't walk through Samaria. And yet you kind of sense this providential plan where it says that Jesus had to, meaning something drew him, something compelled him to come to this little city, Sychar, to meet this rather shady woman. Now, everything about the woman at first glance that we know of, the Samaritan woman, everybody knows that this, this lady is a very unlikely candidate to become a disciple of Christ. She's a very unlikely worshiper. She's not the kind of woman that we would have expected to say, yes, that woman's going to become a model of how we Christians can worship Jesus. First, she was a Samaritan. She was not a Jew, which meant that her people were the wrong kind of people. Those were the wrong kind of people to be worshipers of God. The Samaritans had always been viewed as religious mongrels. According to 1 Kings 12, if you know your history of the Bible, you know King Jeroboam split off from Judah, and so you have King Jeroboam and Judah, that's the kingdom of Judah, and then you have the northern tribes of Israel. Jeroboam gets jealous that all of his people once a year leave out of northern Israel and they go into Judah to worship at the temple. And so he sets up a a competition, sets up golden calves in Dan and Beersheba and tells his people, you don't have to go there. You can come to Dan and Bethel and worship the golden calf instead of going and worshiping Yahweh at the temple. Because of the idolatry, God sends the Assyrians and wipes out the northern tribes of Israel. Once they're all dead, the king of Assyria takes the people who remain and he moves in all these other displaced people, people like Babylonians. And they begin to merge together. It was called cultural genocide to make sure that Israel would never again have a pure Israelite. They were half-breeds in Jews' eyes. Half-breeds. Lessers. Not fit to be in the people of God. They were syncretists, which means that they took their Babylonian traditions and their idols and their gods and they merged it with worshiping Yahweh. They even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And on Mount Gerizim, they started offering sacrifices, which made the Jews mad. And so they came and destroyed the Samaritans' temple so they couldn't worship this fake god built in this temple, these idol worshipers. And so every single Jew of the day would have looked at these people and they would have called them the, 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 the lesser. They would have seen them as the lessers of society. These were the filth. These were the scum underneath the Jews' fingernails. They're not worth the time. Don't even walk through their land. So when you see a Samaritan woman at that time, you are not expecting to find someone who's going to suddenly become a model of worship. Even more, adding to her unlikeliness of becoming a worshiper, John records 
that the woman was, by her own admission, an adulterous woman. She had five husbands. And the woman that she, and the, and the man that she was living with was not her husband. This was the kind of woman the Pharisees would have wanted to stone. This was the kind of woman that the Pharisees would have dragged to Jesus and says, Moses, and say, Moses commands that we kill such women. So this is that woman. Her life filled with shame. The history of her love life caused her to be ostracized from her own people. She comes to the well at noon, showing that she's not even allowed to come when everybody else is there. She doesn't have friends in her society. She is an outcast of those who are outcast. Samaritan woman pushed aside by her own people who were already pushed aside. Talk about someone marginalized. The irony of it all, though, is when you look at this story and you just, you just flatten out John chapter 1 to John chapter 4, you kind of see this anticipation building up. Wait a second, the Pharisees. They're moralistic people. They're good people. They've not committed adultery before. They make sacrifices. They go to the temple. They read the Torah. They, they obey God. These Pharisees, they, surely they are the ones who will see and know Jesus as Savior. Surely they will be the ones who recognize the Davidic King for who He really is. And yet their eyes remain covered And the Samaritan woman, with all of her past, with all of her brokenness, her eyes are lifted to see the Savior. My friends, religion keeps your eyes covered. Worship opens your eyes to see Jesus. Worship is not about being right and religious. True worship is about being a sinner who knows you're a sinner who has found the right Savior and who wants to come to the right Savior with the right kind of heart. You may not be able to sing with the right kind of voice. You may not, you, your whole life may not be all that right, but yet you come to the right Savior with the right heart. And my friends, that is worship. The marginalized outcast of outcasts can come to Jesus and worship him while the religious elite Pharisees remain blind, they go home unjustified, and they die, and they spend eternity in condemnation. And yet, who dances on the streets of gold? A Samaritan woman. I think we're going to see four points about worship from this story. Number one, Worship is based on our recognition of our thirst. It's based, it begins with, our recognition of thirst. Second, it depends on the state of our heart. Third, it leads us to faith in Jesus. It's sourced from, it springs from, our faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And then finally, it leads us to join in on God's mission. So we're going to walk through these four points. Worship begins by recognizing one's thirst. Verse 6 says this, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now in the Bible, important things happen at wells. If you've read your Bible from beginning to end, you know that wells are important places. 
And it's one way that we track God's redemption going all the way back to Genesis. Here's what we find. We find that the patriarchs often met their wives at wells. Abraham's servant found Isaac's wife, Rebekah, at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. Moses met Zipporah at a well. And in each one of these contexts, God allows this patriarch to meet his wife at a well to display his faithfulness, right? So you think of Isaac and Rebekah. If God didn't give Rebekah to Isaac, the promise is dead. The blessing dies with Abraham. Isaac must have an offspring in order for the line to continue on. Jacob, exiled from his homeland because his brother hates him, and yet he meets his wife Rachel as a guarantee that God will be faithful, that the promise will not die with Jacob. It will carry on. So time and time again, God allows this well, this serendipitous meeting at the well to prove that he is faithful. But it also does more than that when we see a well. There's one other well that's important. We come to see Hagar at a well. Hagar, pregnant by her master, getting ready to have a baby, mistreated by her mistress, by by Sarai, hated, abused, broken, scoundrel, marginalized, dirty, mistreated, abused. Hagar runs away and she comes to the well. And she weeps. She wishes to die. God reveals himself as the God who hears her. Time and time again, these wells are set up so that we will be able to track the revelation of God's faithfulness and the revelation of God's goodness and grace and mercy. And so immediately coming to this Bible, with, with our, coming to this story with our whole Bible context, we begin to say, wait a second now. Jesus comes to a well? And it happens to be the same well. It seems it's Jacob's well. I wonder what's going to happen here. How is God going to show his faithfulness here? How is God going to show his grace here? And so immediately when we see that Jacob's well was there, and that Jesus, this redemptive figure, is sitting beside it, our alarm system should be going off to think, okay, God's going to reveal himself in some way. God's redemption is going to be known in some way. In some fashion, he will prove himself to be faithful. In some fashion, he will prove himself to be the God that hears broken women. And then along comes the woman. In in the very next verse, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. At once we're given a subtle detail about the woman. She comes to draw the water at noon. In ancient times, you didn't go at noon. That's like trying to go water your cattle in Texas at 1 p.m., okay? That's dumb. Don't do that. That's the heat of the day, right? Typically, you go to get water in the morning or in the evening when it's the coolest part of the day, and women didn't go by themselves. They went in groups to go get water. Well, here she comes alone. Here she comes at noon in the middle of the day. She's an outcast, unwanted in society, someone who has got no friends. No one's talking to her. She's not brought into the city's gossip. People don't trust her and care for her and love her. She's all by herself. Now, it's important to see that this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is the largest discussion, the longest discussion in all the Gospels. Who did Jesus talk to the most as far as people? Samaritan woman. He holds the longest discourse with her. 
That's amazing. Longest discourse with this woman. And he opens it up very simply by saying this. Give me a drink. Now he's crossing cultural and ethnic taboos by speaking to this woman. Clearly, she is, she's just dumbfounded by this. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A Samaritan woman. John adds, just because he knows that we'll be reading this and we won't get the culture, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus steps over the line. He's already starting to demonstrate that his message, his message of redemption doesn't include his own people, but it has a vision for people that are beyond his own ethnic Jews. He has a vision that includes Samaritans. So she's shocked. Why are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for water? And then he answers her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus addressed the fact that the woman had no idea who he was or what he could do for her. She has come to the well to quench her physical thirst, but if she knew who Jesus was, she'd be asking him for water. Water that would be better than the water that she can get in this well. Water that doesn't grow stagnant. Water that doesn't dry up. Water that can't be spilt out. It is water that continues to flow. Naturally, she's a Samaritan woman. She doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. She's thinking about physical water, and she begins to ask, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did his sons and livestock. What an appropriate question. Are you, be- are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? Well, Samaritan woman, let me answer that question for you. Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The logic is simple. He compares the wells. He compares the waters. Jacob gave you water that will make you thirsty again. You will drink it. You'll be temporarily satisfied. And then you will come back the next day and draw again. And you will come back the next day and draw again. I, however, Jesus, have a well that you drink from and you will never thirst again. It will lead to internal satisfaction that results in eternal life. It is a well that springs up inside of a person, not that goes into, but one that is sprung up from the inside, welling up to eternal life with God. Now, this is amazing because this is something that God has promised to do all along. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, he tells his people, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. He promises in Isaiah forty nine ten. That people shall no longer hunger or thirst because they'll be satisfied when the Messiah comes. So here comes the Messiah. He's on the scene. His discussion is with the Samaritan woman. And his first promise is, you will not thirst anymore. Now the woman's response in verse 15 shows that she still does not fully understand. But it's beginning to dawn on her that she needs whatever water Jesus is offering. A lot of people read these words in verse 15 as if the woman's being sarcastic. I don't think she's being sarcastic at all. I think she's, in in her simple faith, and her simple understanding of what Jesus is saying, is realizing that she needs the water. Jesus is right. She's thirsty again and again and again, and she needs some water that will 
Quench that thirst forever. So she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Simple faith. You're right. I thirst again and again. And you're right. I need you to give me this water. Not perfect knowledge, not perfect understanding, but a simple faith that it acknowledges a need and who can meet that need. Acknowledges dissatisfaction and acknowledges who can bring satisfaction. Jesus drives it even further, though. What was naturally true about her physical thirst was also true of her spiritual thirst. Jesus makes this point clear when he says, go call your husband and come here. Now, we all know how the story goes, right? She says, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, you're not telling the full story, so go ahead and draw it out. You've had five husbands, right? And the one that you currently live with is not your husband. You're in an adulterous relationship with a man right now. He tells her things that she probably hadn't told people in years. I mean, this is why she's coming to the well at noon, so people won't talk to her about it. She's learned to cover up. She's learned to mask over. She's learned to put makeup on to cover up the, the scars of abuse and, and, and the, the past relationships and the past love lives and the people who've mistreated her and who've, who've turned her into a woman who's been abused. She's been thirsty. And she sought out that water in the arms of many different lovers. There's some of us right now that can, that can relate. We're thirsty. And we've turned to our money to try to find satisfaction. We've turned to our career. We've turned to our friends. We've turned to our reputation. We continue to turn and turn and turn and turn. And we drink. And for a moment, it feels good. The cold water down our throat, it satisfies us. And yet, at the end of the day, we're still thirsty. It's not satisfying. Jesus' teaching of worship, Jesus showing us what a, a worshiping disciple is like, begins by telling us and helping us, like the Samaritan woman, see our need for living water that never runs out. We're students who learn from Jesus to find rest. We're givers who learn from Jesus washing us how to wash others. And now we see that we're worshipers who are thirsty and broken and dying and parched in need the cold water that is in Jesus' hands. Our spiritual throats are dry. Our souls are shriveled and are dead from the scorching heat of the fall. In the words of Jeremiah 2.13, we have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and we have turned to broken cisterns that can't hold waters, to mud holes. We take our straws and we leave the river. And then we decide that we're going to try to suck out water from mud holes that don't have any water. And we wonder why we're so tired. We wonder why we're so broken. Credit card debt goes up because we're just not satisfied. Our reputation goes up. And yet at the end of the day, it's never enough. Husband after husband, wife after wife, and yet we're still empty. And we can't find the one whom our soul is loved and feels accepted and feels beloved by. 
We accomplish amazing tasks at our job. We get things done. We get promotions. We get raises. And yet at the end of the day, it's still, what's it all worth? My friends, true worship begins by acknowledging that you are dry and need water. And that without Jesus, your thirst will return. Now second, worship depends on the heart, not the place. The woman was understandably shocked by Jesus' knowledge of her secrets. Her conclusion was that he was a prophet, given by God to give her insight about God. I don't think she's trying to change subjects, is how a lot of people deal with this question. I don't think that's what she's trying to do. She's not evading. He's a prophet. He knows about her secret life. So I think she says, oh, I see that you can tell me secret things about myself. Maybe you can tell me how to become right with God. So she asks, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Her question's simple. Okay, well, you've shocked me. You've got my ear. You've got my attention. I, I know I'm thirsty. I know I need the water that you give. Now can you tell me, prophet, how to become right with God? Where do I go to worship God? Because I'm clearly broken and I'm clearly alienated from God. So where do I go? Jesus changes the focus from traditions in place, though. He doesn't answer back to her about which place she should worship. He changes the focus completely. He says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he's saying we're right to worship in Jerusalem. But that's not important. Why? Because of what the next verse says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. To be sure, Jerusalem was the right place to worship. The temple had been picked out by God. The place of worship was absolutely right. And yet, it's not about place. The hour is coming and now here when the Father will not be worshipped based on where someone is standing, but based on the state of their heart. Can you imagine, imagine how profound this would have been? God was never satisfied with holy places. Never satisfied with them. He was never satisfied with being worshipped in the temple alone. Go to Isaiah 1. He talks about he's had enough of their burnt offerings. Incense is an abomination. Why? Because they were worshiping in the right place, but had corrupt and wicked hearts. They were going through the ritual, simply going through the motions, singing the songs, memorizing scripture, and yet at the end of the day, they failed to actually worship God. Slaughtered physical lambs, burnt physical incense, and yet they, was, they were still far from God. My friends, that's the danger of all worship. Sometimes we think we worship because we go to church. Sometimes we think we worship because we join in the songs. Sometimes we think we worship because we brought our Bibles to church. When in reality, worship is not about doing the right religious things, as Jesus shows. It's not going to the right religious places. Worship is a matter of the heart. It's worshiping in spirit and in truth. Jesus' words show that what truly matters is how a, wor- a person is worshiping from within. Incredible significance for us. May we sing the right songs, absolutely. We labor here at Grace Church 
to think of to to sing lyrics that sound like they're coming from scripture to sing songs that point clearly to Jesus more than they point to us we work hard and we practice to hit right chords to strike perfect hom- harmony we give consistently there are people who have set it up so that they never have to physically give again because it automatically withdraws from the account there are people that pray out loud i preach passionately Several elders preach and teach passionately. And yet, if we do not do so in spirit and in truth, are we really worshiping? If we do not do so with a heart that worships God, can we, simp- can we actually say that we are engaging in worship? Because you know what doesn't matter are your traditions. What doesn't matter is your religious actions. What matters more, in it, more than anything is a heart that accepts God as worthy of worship. Now, third, worship culminates in knowing Jesus as our Savior. So far, the discussion has highlighted the woman's thirst. It's driven her to think about spiritual things, like how, would one, how should one worship God? But now we come to the climax. This is what the whole well meeting's been about. We're waiting for God to reveal his faithfulness. We're waiting for God to reveal himself in some way. Here it comes. She's listening to all this. Okay, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Okay, prophet, tell me how to get get right with God. And every answer drives her closer and closer and closer, so much so that now she doesn't know what to say. She simply groans for the Messiah. Can you imagine being brought to such a place in this discussion with Jesus that you just groan, I long for the Messiah. Here's what she says. I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You can almost hear the sigh in her words, can't you? She knows she's not going to be satisfied without the Messiah. She knows that everything that Jesus said is great. She knows that they're true. But she knows that there's no hope of all things being made right, all things being revealed, all things being shown to her until the Messiah comes, until the promised one comes to set her free. She was thirsty. She did not even know how to worship God. But even if she did know how to worship God, she would need the Messiah to set her right, to set her straight, to bring her reconciliation. And what's amazing when you read about these kinds of things in other texts, Jesus is very slow to kind of show himself to be the Messiah. He doesn't, he doesn't outright say it to them sometimes. But to this woman, he doesn't beat around the bush. She has faith as simple as a child. She has all the prerequisites she needs to be able to see Jesus now. She knows she's thirsty. She knows she needs to be reconciled to God. So here's what he says. Now just listen to the beautiful shock of this. I know that when the Messiah comes, he will let us know all things. He will make all things right. And then comes Jesus' words. I who speak to you am he. profound. She doesn't even question it. She leaves her water jar, which is not something you leave at a well. She leaves her water jar and she runs to the city to find out that the man that she's been waiting for her whole life, the man that she, is, she knows will bring her satisfaction after finding six lovers that can't provide for her the kind of love and acceptance and care and, and, and the, the kind of forgiveness and, and reconciliation with God. She has sought that out six different ways. 
And the find that the man she's waited for her whole life is finally here. Her, her true husband who can finally satisfy. Her true husband who can finally provide. Her true husband who can finally make her right with God. There he is. Finally able to give her water that will satisfy forever. My friends, every song, every prayer of confession, every prayer of adoration, every public reading, every sermon points to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lamb of God, the offspring of the woman, the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days and is given dominion on high. He's the suffering servant who dies, who becomes a lamb who is slain because of my sin. Every song points to the fact that this man satisfies me in a way none other can. So I'll sing to him. I'll read for him. I'll pray to him. I don't come into this church singing my political party songs. I don't come into this church singing my alma mater. I don't come into this church singing the numbers in my bank account. I don't come to this church singing how many Twitter followers I have. You know why? Because none of them are worthy of it. Because none of them can satisfy. When was the last time that you were just compelled to sing? Because you knew that Jesus was worthy. When was the last time that you were compelled to worship? Without, Without caring too much about all the formalities that go around it. But just stirred up in such a way that you can't help but sway and move and sing and close your eyes and cry and weep and pray. Because Jesus has shown you such great grace. My friends, heaven's going to be filled with an outbreak of worship. Tambourine bangers, drum beaters, dancers, palm wavers. People who can sing in tune, people who sing out of tune. People who can't carry a tune in a bucket. People who should be singing 10 or 12 miles from the throne. It will be all there. Why? Because they will see that Jesus is worth it. But you will not find a quiet mouth. You will not find a a still foot. You will not find empty hands around the throne. You will see hands raised in worship and praise around the throne because Jesus is the Messiah. Now, final point. Worship ultimately calls us to join in God's greater mission. It's a mistake to think that worship is this hour. Okay, If I were to ask you, when do you worship? If your answer is, well, I go to worship every Sunday morning at 1030, well, you're immediately beginning to think about worship in the wrong way. If you think that worship is to be done in isolation, that's really just about you and God, you're thinking of one aspect of worship. That's true. But it's more than that. Worship culminates in, in your songs, in your praises, in your words, in your reading, in your preaching to call other worshipers to Jesus. You've found water. There are other thirsty people. And as an act of worship, you want them to find water as well. 
You find satisfaction and you found a whole bunch of groaning people and you want them to find satisfaction as well. That is ultimate worship. My friends, the end goal is not just that you come to church by yourself or you sit in your car by yourself and you sing by yourself. Those are all great and to be sure, it is a part of worship. But it's not worship alone. We worship best when we talk about our Savior the most. We worship best when we cross cultural lines, ethnic lines, property lines, to be able to take the message that Jesus is the source of living water to dry and thirsty people. There are neighbors right across from you who have abusers in their lives just like you have had. There are people who are contemplating getting a divorce just like you have. There are people who are into drugs and into alcohol and can't get out of their stupor. There are people who are afraid of the future just like you were. My friends, you have found water. You no longer thirst. Why not worship and helping point that, that source of water, that living water to other people? God's vision is simply this. God envisions worshipers from every tribe, nation, and language gathered around his throne. This is what scripture calls the ingathering of the nations, where he sees the people from all nations coming to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now what's ironic about this whole text is that the disciples are the skeptical ones. The woman is the one that's believing and joining in the mission. She runs and tells the rest of the city and brings the whole city out to see Jesus. The disciples, these religious guys, the Jews, the ones who are closest to Jesus, they come and they're like, why is he talking to her? Why is Jesus speaking to the Samaritan? It says that they were shocked. They were astonished. And, and what's funny about the whole thing is they're not all that more spiritual than the Samaritan woman. In fact, they think just as physically as she does. She thought that Jesus was talking about physical water, and so they start to talk about food. Jesus, you need to eat. Jesus says, I have food that you did not know about. Peter, did you sneak him food again? Are you trying to win favor with Jesus? Okay, who gave Jesus a granola bar, and who's been holding out? Right? They're kicking around this discussion about physical food. And then it's when Jesus finally helps them see, just like he did the Samaritan woman, the point of this spiritual truth. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My friends, Jesus was so hungry and bent on the fact of ingathering worshipers that this Samaritan village was his nourishment. The Samaritan village coming. This this vision of of seeing these people who were lost, they're broken. This city of darkness. These idol worshippers. To see them come to Jesus. It transcended the disciples' prejudice. It transcended their suspicions. It transcended the need for physical food. There is a harvest that God is worthy to receive and it's ready. Gather the worshipers. Bring them to God. It's a beautiful thing. Many Samaritans from the town believed because of this woman's testimony. The woman they did not bother to speak to or invite to come draw water with them all of a sudden captivates them with stories of finding the Messiah. They don't doubt her. They don't kick her aside. They all come. 
And then it goes on to say, they, they're listening to Jesus. I just want you to imagine this. The mayor walks out. He sits down at the well. There's the city councilman. There's the local rich guy who owns the mansion on the corner. There's the Starbucks owner with all of his weird views. And he's sitting there around the well. And they listen to Jesus. And then imagine the mayor looking and speaking to the Samaritan woman for the first time ever. A woman he wouldn't have dared to speak to in the past because it would have hurt his reputation. Here's what he says to her. It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know indeed that Jesus is the Savior. You know what's sweet about evangelism? I love telling people about their need for Jesus. I love telling them about the promises of God. But what's amazing is when people start to walk with Jesus or they start to learn more or they start to sense him, the more they start to see, it's not because of what you said. (laughs) Because I've seen it. I've heard it. You said he tasted sweet. Great. I've tasted and I've seen. The Lord is good. Now just... Amazing irony. Jesus goes to Jewish villages and they push him out. They ask him to leave. He, he sends demons into their, into their pig herds to save a man. And they're like, get out of here. They drive him out. They threaten to kill him. They threaten to stone him. And yet, these tattooed, drug-abusing adulterers in the ghetto hear Jesus and they believe. While the clean tie-wearing, white-suited Baptist remain blind. My friends, I have often been someone who has puffed up my chest because of how religious I am. Don't you know how many times I pray a day? I can read the Bible in three languages. I come to church more faithfully than all of you. And yet at the end of the day, my religiosity doesn't matter one little bit. And it doesn't bring me closer to the throne. And the fact of the matter is, is heaven's going to be filled with people. I'm just going to look at and go like, how in the heck did you get here? And then there's going to be people where I'm like, yeah, but he, he preached at the conference, Jesus. Why isn't he allowed in? My friends... There's a lot of parallels between the Samaritan woman's story in context of John and the, par- and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee puffs up his chest. I fast three times a day. Well, probably three times a week he'd die if he did it three times a day. I give 10% of all that I have. And then there's a Samaritan woman beats her chest. I'm thirsty. Doesn't even doesn't even want to re- realize, doesn't even want to talk about how bad she is because she knows that she's a sinner. Guess who went home justified? The Pharisee or the Samaritan woman? The Samaritan woman that night laid her head down on her pillow. The same pillow that she had shared with six other lovers who could not satisfy. And she could take for the very first time in her life a deep sigh of satisfaction and sleep. Knowing that eternal life was there. Not because she was religious enough. Not because she found the right place to worship. Not because she went to Jerusalem. Not because she had cleaned her act up. But because she had met Jesus and that was enough. So she could lay there at night and go. 
No more groaning for the Messiah. She had him. Let me ask you, what kind of worshiper are you? Are you someone that comes with Pharisaic religiosity? Head held high? You're not like those people. You've not done the things they do. You've never committed adultery. You've never cheated on your taxes. You don't have tattoos. You keep your piercings in all the right places. You go to the right kind of churches. You sing the right kind of songs. You give the right amount of money. You know how to start the Lord's Prayer audibly with that deep voice, Our Father. You know that that's proper and appropriate. Or are you the kind of worshiper that comes and knows, you know what, I'm a, I'm a ragamuffin. I'm a scoundrel. I'm a mongrel. I come with all my idolatries, my brokenness. I come with all my sins that y'all don't know about. I come with all my previous lovers that I've ran to to find satisfaction. I am dirty. I am soiled. I am broken. I am messed up. I was thirsty, and I thirst no more. How many times have you just sang because you've drank deep of the water? Religious people, religious people are thirsty people. Religious people are alienated people. Religious people are going to hell. Worshippers are those who know Jesus gives living water. My friends, don't be Pharisees that cast stones. Don't be Pharisees who focus on religious places and religious things and religious actions. Be people who knows your, know yourselves for who you are. You are a sinner, saved, not by religion, but by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah has dug deep into the wells of heaven and now you no more thirst and now you can sing. That's what disciples are called to be. In the train of heaven's disciples who surround the throne, I don't know if we'll see Caiaphas. Everybody expects to see him there. I mean, he's high priest. I don't know if I'll see Pilate. Maybe, if he ever repented. I don't, I don't think we'll see Herod the Great. That dude was a bad dude. Maybe, who knows. But there's one woman I do know that we'll see there. For lack of a better term, we'll see this whorish, adulterous, broken, empty, poor, Messed up, scrambled up, hurting, groaning, thirsty woman. And when you see her, she'll be crowned at the crown of glory because she's been crowned not by her religion, but by her God who gives her grace.